Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. I want the truth. You can't handle the truth. Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here's your host, Rob Dalrymple. Today's podcast is from a sermon series I did on the Gospel of Luke. I hope you enjoy. Amen. Good morning. Good morning. Woo! We made it again. Another week of trials and tribulations and temptations and struggles. Um, we come back together as God's people to fellowship together, to worship together, to serve, uh, to be fed, to be encouraged, to be nurtured and strengthened, then to go back out there this afternoon and do it all again for the, the work of the Lord. My name is Rob Darnapel. I'm the pastor here at Northminster. It's wonderful to see you all. If this is your first time here or have never filled out a Connect card out, we'd love to get your information so we can keep you up to date as to what's going on here. So fill out a Connect card and put it in the offering plate. Uh, this morning we're going to continue our study of the Gospel of Luke. And here's my question. Do you believe in hell? Whatever it might mean. And some have different beliefs or convictions, whether it's literal flames of fire. Or whatever, but do we really believe in it? And we can say we believe in it. But in all reality, if we believe in it, it will affect the way we act. It really will. Because if we really believe in hell, then we really believe that people out there, that others that we know, might actually be going there. And we'd be concerned. We'd be in prayer. We would act differently so that they could see the light of the gospel in and through our lives. Because we don't want them, let alone us, to go there. If you have your Bibles, open them up to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 12, verse 49, page 738 in your pew Bibles. Though I do believe, I may have made a mistake when I, it will be the first time, but it's happened. Um, a mistake when I made the slides. Sometimes I, uh, am I on? Yeah, all right. Sometimes when I uh, am doing my work, I forget to translate, to transfer over to the NIV. So my slides might be the New American Standard this morning, and they might not be exactly what you're reading in your pew Bible. So you can follow along either on the screen uh, or in your pew Bibles a, a, as you like. We're probably very familiar with the fact that the Gospels open up with the story of Jesus, and Matthew and Luke kind of have the birth narratives, and every year we spend four weeks at Advent, but the four weeks before Christmas, kind of going over the, the biblical stories. And if you've been at church at all in your lifetime, You've probably heard all the, the, the basic stories of Luke chapter 1 and 2 and the angels and, and, and are singing and, and, and Mary and, and Joseph and are going to Bethlehem. You know, th those stories. And so we're very familiar with Luke chapter 2 verse 14, uh, which says, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. The birth announcement of Jesus is this announcement of peace. Uh, peace and prosperity and, and, and the glory of God. And then we turn to chapter 12, verse 49. And I'll begin there. I have come to cast fire upon the earth, Jesus says. And how I wish it were already kindled, but I have a baptism to undergo. How distressed I am until it is accomplished. Do you suppose that I came to grant peace on earth? I tell you no, but rather division. For from now on, five members in one household will be divided. Three against two and two against three. Verse 53. They will be divided father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. He was also saying to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, immediately you say, a shower is coming. And so it turns out. 
And when you see a south wind blowing, you say, it will be a hot day. And it turns out that way. Verse 56, you hypocrites. You know how to analyze the appearance of the earth and the sky, but why do you not analyze the present time? Why do you not even on your own initiative judge what is right? For while you're going with your opponent to appear before the magistrate, on your way there, make an effort to settle with him, so that he may not drag you before the judge, and the judge turn you over to the officer, and the officer throw you into prison. I say to you, you will not get out of there until you have paid up the very last cent. Chapter 13, verse 1. Now, on the same occasion, there were some present who reported to him about the Galileans, whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. And Jesus said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this fate? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or do you suppose that those 18 on whom the tower in Salome fell and killed them were worse culprits than all the men who live in Jerusalem? Verse 5, But I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he began telling this parable. A man had a fig tree, which he had planted in his vineyard, and he came looking for fruit on it and did not find any. And he said to the vine keeper, Behold, for three years I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree without finding any. Cut it down. Why does it even use up the ground? And he answered and said to him, Well, let it alone, sir, for this year too, until I dig around it and put in fertilizer. And if it bears fruit next year, fine. But if not, cut it down. The words of Jesus are not easy to understand at various times, are they? It begins in chapter 12, verse 49, this section. The gospel is good news. The kingdom of God has come. And the question is this, if the gospel is good news, then how come Jesus seems to be proclaiming judgment? In fact, he specifically says, I didn't come to bring peace. Well, we've been discussing this. In the Gospel of Luke, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all kind of work the same way. They, they, they present the life of Jesus and his life and his ministry. And he goes around proclaiming the Gospel and the good news to the world. The kingdom of God has come, or at least to the Jewish world. The kingdom of God has come. All God's promises in the Old Testament are, are being fulfilled in me. The blind will receive sight. The, the deaf will hear and the dead will, will live again. Uh, uh, freedom for, the, for those who are in captivity. This is good news. And he heals some people. And he does miracles. And he feeds the multitude. And, and, he, and he gathers a ragtag band of, of 12 men who follow him and some women as well. And they go around the countryside of Jerusalem and Judea and up in the Galilee as well, preaching and proclaiming the good news. And then around maybe year two and a half, year two and three quarters, maybe close to the three-year mark. Uh, and it's hard to know exactly how long his ministry was, but we, we believe it was three and a half years long. Uh, somewhere around nine months before the crucifixion of Jesus. How about that? He begins to head directly to Jerusalem. And you can look at Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and each one of those three Gospels will have that, that, that dividing line. It's not in the middle of the Gospel stories, but it's this dividing line. The, the public ministry of the, of the first part proclaiming the gospel, preaching good news, healing people, public miracles, and now he heads to Jerusalem. And the heading to Jerusalem is to become the king. Well, true, and that's certainly what the disciples thought. But he's going to become the king on a cross. And that, that dividing line where he begins to head for Jerusalem now, the gospel of Luke says, he resolutely set out for Jerusalem. That moment where the gospel says he's heading for Jerusalem, and we know the story, he's going there to die, he begins to say, okay, no more public ministry any longer. 
Primarily, he's going to focus on the 12. You guys have to know what's going to happen in six to nine months or so. You've got to understand, I'm going to die in Jerusalem. No, Lord, not you. Get behind me, Satan, he says to Peter. They don't understand this. But we're going to go to Jerusalem, and I'm going to die, and after three days, I'm going to rise again. And then you guys are going to go take the gospel to the nations. The disciples are processing. and process. So the primary focus of the second part of the gospels is this private ministry among his disciples. When Jesus is found, publicly speaking... When he is found talking to the masses, it's often this language of judgment and condemnation. You've had three years to believe. You've had three years. Haven't you seen all the signs I've done? For three years I did all these things among you. For three years I proclaimed the gospel, and you still refuse to listen. This is your consequence. I've come to cast fire upon the earth. And how I wish it were already kindled. But I have a baptism, baptism to undergo. A, a baptism is often a figure of speech, a metaphor for suffering. I have suffering to undergo. The, 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 the judgment, the fire upon the earth is not going to come until after I endure the suffering. Many follow him, but those who don't, he's coming to bring fire and judgment. Now notice that there's no shifts in the topic here in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, in this, at the beginning of this section, verse 49 just simply sends, uh, uh, says, I have come to cast fire upon the earth, which means essentially the same passage of last week is continuing into this week. Last week's message in the first part of uh, the first 48 verses in, the gospel, uh, in Luke 12, Jesus is preparing his disciples, hey, listen, I'm going to leave, and when I leave and come back, you need to be ready. You don't know when I'm coming back. It'll be like a thief in the night. But if, if you know that the thief is coming, you'll be awake and your house won't be robbed. And he describes for his disciples what it looks like to be prepared. And he says, if you're prepared for my coming, you'll do so by caring for my sheep, by caring for my people, loving on them. Problem is, the, the religious leaders are on, an, an, uh, they're on an, another wavelength. Uh, they're, they're thinking differently. Division, then, is going to be the result of people's hearts being unwilling to change. They're not going to listen. They're unwilling to change. Now, if you realize this, by the way, he goes on to describe in the next passage here as we, as we move on, uh, the, the fact that it's going to be mother against uh, daughter and mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, against father against son. And it's, well, the reality is this. When Jesus comes, he's introducing division because not everyone's going to believe. Some are going to follow Jesus and some are not going to follow Jesus. And some within one household begin to follow Jesus and others don't. And here's the problem that that's going to create. Grandma raised us to not eat pork. Grandma raised us to not eat with Gentiles because they do eat pork. Grandma raised us not even to associate with Gent Gentiles or non-Jews. Not even to associate with Gentiles. Grandma raised us to go to synagogue on Saturday, not church on Sunday. Grandma raised us to go to the temple and to do our sacrifices. And the early Christians are doing what? They're eating with Gentiles. I doubt they were eating pork, but they might have been, because they can. But they're no longer going to the synagogue on Saturday. Well, they might be doing that, but they're certainly going to church on Sundays as well. And they're certainly not going to the temple to offer sacrifices any longer, because Jesus is the sacrifice once and for all. And then add to all that, they're worshiping Jesus. 
This is blasphemy. This is, this, is a, this is appalling. If we could only get ourselves in this cultural context of the first century Jewish world and how we, we were raised to do these things and now they're doing something else, this is creating division in the household. Once Christianity spreads, by the way, in the book of Acts with the Apostle Paul going out, preaching the gospel of the Roman Empire, it gets even worse. Because in Christianity going out to the Roman Empire, now the, the Christians are no longer practicing all the religious aspects of the Roman Empire. They didn't attend the trade guild and, and the festivities for, for, for the blacksmiths or the coppersmiths or the silversmiths or the leather workers. Those trade guild uh, uh, functions and activities were always dedicated to a pagan god. And the Christians won't go. But this isn't just a religious function. It's, 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 it's part of our work. It's part of our culture. It, it's just it's what we do. It's like saying we won't, we won't celebrate Thanksgiving any longer. It, it's just it's part of who we are. The Christians won't call Caesar Lord. They won't honor Caesar at public events. Christians are no longer doing what was simply normal in the life of the world. And as a result, division. One scholar says it this way, uh, N.T. Wright says, We may suppose that part of the reason why Christians were so unpopular was that they disassociated themselves from so much that was taken for granted as bringing color and fun into the normal drab and sometimes dangerous drudgery of life. The answer then is this, Jesus did not come to bring peace. He came to bring divisions. Now, uh, now we can go, well, as we mentioned earlier, Luke chapter 2, uh, verse 14, I came to bring peace, or peace on earth with men with whom he is pleased. But the result is that with the peace that Jesus brings, he also brings opposition. The very same chapter of, in, in Luke chapter 2 where it says, Glory to God in the highest on earth, bring uh, peace among men. Later on in that very same chapter, Simeon says in verse 34, Simeon blessed Joseph and Mary and, and said to Mary, Jesus' mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel and for a sign to be opposed. In the very same chapter that the angels announce peace among men, Simeon says, this child is appointed for the fall and the rise of many in Israel and for a sign to be opposed. The result is division and not peace. Divisions within families. His ministry is going to have serious effects upon family ties. Luke chapter 12, verse 53, they, they will be divided father against son, Son against father, mother against daughter, and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. And he was saying to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, immediately you say, a shower's coming. And so it turns out. And when you see a south wind blowing, you say, it'll be a hot day. And so it turns out. Now the irony is, as we mentioned a few weeks back, that the crowds were wanting Jesus to, to perform some signs. Show us a sign! Jesus' answer is, I've been doing signs for three years. What more do you want? Can you not now read the signs? You know when you see the, 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 the light clouds coming from that way, you know. Uh, what, what, what's that old saying? Um, uh, uh, red sky at night, the sailor's delight. Red sky in the morning, the sailor's warning. You know how to read the signs. Then you should know that judgment is coming as well. Verse 56, you hypocrites. You know how to analyze the appearance of the earth and the sky, but why do you not analyze the present time? Can't you see what I've been doing? Why do you not even on your own initiative judge what's right? For while you're going, your opponent 
For while you're going with your opponent to appear before the magistrate, and, and this is a context here, is, is someone's in debt. It's a, it's a debt situation. And now the guy that you owe money to is taking you to the court. Uh, and Jesus says, while you're going with your opponent to appear before the magistrate, on your way there, make an effort to settle with him so that he may not drag you before the judge and the judge turn you over to the officer and the officer throw you into prison. I say to you, you won't get out of there until you've paid up the very last cent. You hypocrites, he says. A hypocrite is someone whose who's focus is misdirected. They're not directed on God. They, they seem to be, but they're not. They're ultimately directed upon self. Analyze the present time. God is clearly at work. If you simply read the gospel stories for us, we can see what Jesus was doing for all these years. He's clearly at work. You can judge for yourselves, he says. And then he uses a parable from the Roman debt system. If you're in debt, here's the reality. You're going to lose when you get to the judge, because you owe. And you have two options in the, in the Roman world at this time, if you're in, in debt. And that is, you either become a slave... Or you go to prison until you've paid up the last cent. So make a deal with the guy. Work it out because you're gonna when the when the judgment comes, it will be too late. Jesus' answer is, work it out. I, I'm here. Judgment's coming. You're on your way to the judge, and you got a last moment to plea and to get out of this. And then chapter 13 seems to have some obscure stories that do sell. And let's, let's look at the context a little bit. Verse, uh, chapter 13, verse 1. Now, on the same occasion, notice again, in the Gospel of Luke, chapter breaks are often not helpful. It's a new chapter, but it's the same story. On the same occasion, there were some present who reported to Jesus about the Galileans, whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifice. Now, we don't know anything about this story, actually, from any source outside the Bible. We have several sources of the first century world, but they don't mention this, uh, this event. But Galileans are people who live up in the north, up in the Sea of Galilee. There's Galilee, there's Samaria, and there's Judea. Jerusalem is in Judea. So Galileans, where, where Jesus spent most of his time, where Peter's from, where, you know, they're up from the north. And apparently, some of them had come to Jerusalem for their sacrifices. Now, there's one particular sacrifice that they can actually do, uh, that actually the, the, the individual themselves is actually performing the sacrifice, not the priests. And apparently... Pilate had them slaughtered in the midst of the sacrifice. Pilate, perhaps thinking, Pilate, by the way, was a really bad ruler and did not know how to maintain peace. He actually hated Jews. So being the king of the Jew, or, or the governor of the Jewish people was not a good office for him because he's not going to make a lot of friends with the Jewish people. And he did a lot of really dumb things. Right? But apparently he probably thought, if I slaughter these Galileans, the Judeans won't mind. But the Judeans most likely looked at it and said, if he can slaughter Galileans, he can slaughter us also. And they revolted against them. But the context of this passage is actually this. is They thought, the Jewish world thought, that calamity only comes upon people who deserved it. If something bad happens to you, it's because you deserved it. So here's the, here's the situation. Jesus said, do you think that the Galileans were greater sinners you know, the ones that Pilate slaughtered at the temple. Do you think they were greater sinners than everybody else? Is that why they suffered? I tell you, no. They were not greater sinners. But you also will likewise perish. 
Another illustration. Do you suppose that the 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell, a, a tower just simply fell south of Jerusalem, and it killed 18 people? Was it because they were worse sinners than you are? No. They're not worse than you are. This is simply the way it is. Calamity happens sometimes, on, even on the undeserving. They were, they were offering sacrifices in the temple. They clearly weren't deserving of a calamity. But Jesus says to them, and unless you repent, you also will perish. You won't escape the judgment because of some supposed holiness. Verse 5, I tell you the truth, unless you repent, you likewise will perish. And he began telling them a parable. A man had a fig tree, which he planted in a vineyard. And it's not uncommon to plant a fig tree among some vines. And he came looking for fruit on it, and he didn't find any fruit. Now, in this world, a, a, a fig tree is not going to bear fruit for three years. So most likely, when the man who planted the fig tree comes back, it's actually the fourth year, and there's no fruit on it. And he comes back a second year, and no fruit on it. He comes back a third year. For three years, he says, I, I've been looking for fruit in this fig tree without finding any. It's been six years since I planted this fig tree, and there's no fruit on it. So the man says, well, well, you know what? Let it alone for one more year, a seventh year. And note the number seven in scriptures. Perfection, completion, total finality. Let it go one more year. I'll dig around it. I'll put in some fertilizer. And if it bears fruit next year, fine. But if not, then we're going to cut it down. The gospel's good news to those who repent. And Jesus is nearing the end of his ministry. The, the six years of looking for fruit amongst the Pharisees and religious leaders has come. I'm going to give you one more year. You can see the clouds are coming and the storm's about to happen. You know the storm's coming. And the judgment for the storm is inevitable. You only have a little while later to repent. Well, I'm going to have to cut it down. The answer is, unless you repent, you also will perish. Unless you repent, you also will perish. Earlier in the Gospel of Luke, John the Baptist begins the ministry of Jesus with his baptism. And, Luke, and John the Baptist says in Luke chapter 3, verses 8 and 9, Therefore, John the Baptist says, Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones God is able to raise up children to Abraham. Indeed, the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. So every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Now we might ask ourselves, what does bearing fruit look like? What does it look like to bear fruit? And if we look at the gospel look thus far for the 12 chapters that we've gone through already, let me note two things. Number one, bearing fruit means proclaiming the gospel to the nations. Luke chapter 9, he sends out the 12. Luke chapter 10, he sends out the 70. Jesus has been preparing the disciples for them to go out and to bear witness. To bear fruit is to make Jesus known. But secondly, as we looked at last week, for those of you that were with us, bearing fruit also means to care for God's people. As we know in Matthew's gospel, whatever you do for the least of these brothers of mine, you do for me. Right, now, let's, uh, let, uh, let's take this home. Uh, how, how do we apply this today? Number one, God is love. Now, note, by the way, we say God is love. We do not say that God loves. 
or that God has love. God is love. Love is his nature. Love is who he is. You, you cannot act against your nature. By definition, everything God does is loving. God can't do something that's non-loving. Sometimes we try to compartmentalize things and say, well, that's God's love and that's God's justice. And the answer is God is holy. God is love. He cannot do anything that's not love and just at the same time. It might look more loving here and more just there, but it's lovingly just and justly loving always. That's simply who God is. Well, some will say, well, if that's the case, then, then God can't send someone to hell. I mean, he's loving. And, and a loving God can't send someone to hell. It would be against his nature. And here's the reality. God is not only loving, but he created loving beings, or beings who could love. He created free beings. You see, love by its nature needs to be shared, and so God creates love uh, beings whom he can share his love with. But love, by definition, is something that you choose to do. So it's upon us to choose to love him back. Or to choose to not love. Now, we know the story in the, Garden of, in the Garden of Eden. We chose to not love. We chose self. God expelled us. And then the Christ comes and says, I'm going to give you another opportunity. I'm going to make a way through the, through the body and through the blood for you to have another opportunity to have a loving relationship with God the Father. And for three years, Jesus has offered this loving relationship with God. And they've begun to reject him. Many. And so the answer becomes, if you don't choose to love God back, if you don't desire to be in a loving relationship with God, then you don't enter into God's presence for eternity. It's the last place you want to be. You don't go to heaven because you don't want to be there. That's actually a loving decision. It, it, God's like, I don't want this to happen. I want you to be with me, but, but this is what you want. And because it's what you want, I lovingly will honor your wishes. And, we are, and those who reject him are expelled from his presence, which by definition is hell. Hell, by definition, is, is being absent from the presence of God. You could say it has flames of fire. You can say it's annihilation. You can say whatever you want. We're not going to get into that discussion this morning. The reality is, God is lovingly honoring a person's desire to not be in his presence. And that's hell. Second thing is, we can learn from the religious leaders who did not like Jesus. And it's important to note that it's the religious leaders who did not like Jesus predominantly. We talked about this a number of times if you've been with us, and that is we, we read the gospel stories, or we read Paul in the book of, uh, of Romans or Galatians, and we always tend to read it, at least I do, right, as I'm on Jesus' side. I'm on Paul's side. Yeah, Paul, you tell those Thessalonians to get their act together. Right, yeah, go, that, that's right. We, we fail to read it as though Paul might be speaking to us or as though Jesus might be speaking to us. Do not judge. That's right, Jesus. You tell those people they've been judging me all day long. You tell them not to judge anyone, right? Because he's not speaking to me, of course. I don't have those problems. Right? I'm, I'm on the good side, but we can learn. Because the gospel stories is that the religious leaders... The ones who are the most religious did not like Jesus. Now what happens when, when, when you have this preconception that you're opposed to someone or to something, and we all do this. We have a preconception that I don't like this or I do like this. 
And we filter everything that happens through that lens, don't we? Right? If I don't like something, then every time something bad happens that confirms my dislike of that, I, I pay attention to it. When something good happens that would contradict my dislike, I ignore it. I reject it. Or vice versa, if I like it, then everything that's good, I, 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 enforce that, I reinforce that. And if I don't like it, I, I kind of ignore it and dismiss it. Everything that happens gets filtered through this perspective. So when Jesus heals somebody, the relig religious leaders say, you're, power, you're empowered by the devil. When you cast out demons, it's by the power of the devil you cast out demons. When he eats with tax gatherers and sinners, he doesn't know who he's eating with. He's eating with sinners. When he welcomes a woman who, who, who lavishes perfume on him, if he knew what kind of woman this was, he wouldn't allow her, allow her to do it. She's a sinner. Jesus forgives sins, and so he's a blasphemer. When you don't like Jesus, everything he does is going to be filtered through this lens of, I don't like him. And, it re and I have a reason why I don't like him. And he did a miracle. Oh, it's by the power of the devil. He's eating with the wrong people. Yeah, see, he doesn't even know what kind of people to eat with. Why do they hate Jesus? This is from a commentator. He says, because Jesus threatened everything they had built in their own strength. Jesus was throwing forgiveness around to the worst of sinners as if it was absolutely free. He was loving the unlovable as if, as if he had everything to gain by doing so. Jesus stood between them and sinners when it came time for a good stoning. And Jesus unloaded his harshest words of condemnation onto those who made a custom out of condemnation. He, he busted up the temple and told them that they had turned it into something else, something vile. They hated Jesus because he went around giving hope to the hopeless, forgiveness to the sinners, laying bare the self-sufficient. He destroyed the illusion of personal holiness, and he stood between the lowly and the strong. So who hated him? It was the religious ones who hated him. The political powers didn't like him either, but they, weren't, they didn't seem to be threatened by him. Uh, Pilate didn't worry about Jesus. He was like, whatever, your kingdom doesn't appear to be any threat to mine. But in the next hundreds of years, the political powers that be were also threatened by them. Nero has Peter and Paul killed. Roman emperors for the next several hundred years will have Christians slaughtered en masse. Now here's a question that's this. Are we supposed to be hated? Interesting question. Are we supposed to be hated? You know, is it, is it part of our nature as Christians and who we are and what we represent to actually be hated? And the answer is, well, yeah, maybe to some extent. That's what the parable of the sower is all about. The fact is, is that the, the one who receives the word of God with joy is going to endure stones and thorns and, and tribulations and persecutions and sufferings. So it's not surprising. It shouldn't be surprising if we're hated because we follow Jesus. The early Christians faced a lot of opposition. But the problem today is that some Christians conclude that being hated is a sign of their, of their righteousness. I, I, I'm, I, I must be a really good Christian because a lot of people hate me. One scholar says it this way. He says, I've seen many Christians attempt to wear the world's hatred as a badge of honor. They count it a huge win if they can get some atheist to rip them on Twitter or in the comments on Facebook, blogs, or on YouTube. They spend hours handing out tough love to homosexuals, alcoholics, adulterers, porn addicts, and all those false converts who disagree with them on matters, uh, on what should be open-handed matters of doctrine. A, world of, a, a, a whole world of people hates them all right, so therefore they must be right. Right? 
And the answer is no. We should expect to be opposed by the world and by the powers that be, but not because we're jerks, but because we love and we serve those whom the world doesn't respect. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's tough. Sometimes we read these passages and they're encouraging and they're uplifting and they're easy to understand and we get it. And sometimes we look at a passage like this and it's like, ah, that's not the Jesus I learned about in Sunday school. That, that Jesus, this Jesus seems to be harsh. This Jesus is dishing out strong warnings. And then, Lord, we're reminded that you are indeed a God of love. And because you love, you honor our freedom. You honor our choices, even when they're not good ones. You come to us. You make yourself known. You provide people to come around us to warn us and advise us about the bad decisions we're making. But in the end, if we continue to make them, so be it. And so, Lord, help us to be the people of God that we're supposed to be. To love one another and to love even our enemies, if it be that. And when they persecute us and ISIS chops our heads off, when governments that are evil imprison us, may we rejoice because we were found worthy of suffering disgrace for the sake of the, of the Lamb. May we continue to love them anyways because we too were blind, but now we see. We too were once lost, but now we're found. Help us, Lord, to be gentle on Facebook and Twitter and compassionate in our conversations. Help us be kind and caring because, Lord, we know that you desire that no one perish but that all come to eternal life. So Lord, if we are in this room this morning and we're struggling, maybe we haven't been as faithful as we need to be and maybe we're realizing that you've called us to be a light to people who might go to hell and we haven't been a light to them. May you forgive us. May you strengthen us and encourage us and help us to go back to those people in particular and tell them that we're sorry for the way we've acted or how we've treated them or our judgmentalism towards them or our, our hypocrisy in front of them. And help us to share the gospel, the love of Jesus Christ, even if it's just in our deeds for now, maybe in our words later. And then remind us that we are your sons and your daughters and that we are filled with the joy and the power and the peace of the Holy Spirit. We thank you for these things. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you would like more information on the Determined Truth podcast, you can find us on iTunes. You can follow Rob's blog at DeterminedTruth.com or purchase his books on Amazon.com. See you next time.